0: Are there risks building up in the stock market? They've had a really good run here, shares have in the United States anyway. Outside the U.S., different story, especially in Asia and China. But shares in the United States, they're doing well while bonds are screaming bloody murder. How can that be? What is it that stocks are pricing that bonds are not? Or what are bonds pricing that stocks are not? What are stocks actually going on about? It seems like really simple math here. Shares are saying disinflation, which seems to be everywhere nowadays, maybe even a little too aggressive. Disinflation plus the Fed backing off equals Goldilocks soft landing, the best possible scenario for everyone. So the share prices are up in heaven while bond markets are doing something else entirely. But what are stocks... Are stocks actually pricing the soft landing? Well, instead... If we look back through history, what we see is that it's not so much about fundamentals in the economy. It's certainly not about the monetary system, as you so often hear. What share prices are really saying is everyone thinks that everyone else thinks there will be a soft landing. And then that thinking process, there's a whole lot of assumptions that don't necessarily get grounded in reality because share prices are not linked to the monetary system, and over the last 40 years, they have become less and less and less about economic fundamentals too. We're in the territory of John Maynard Keynes' famous beauty contest, but as Robert Schiller pointed out, even so, share prices can remain in the beauty contest for for our entire lives. Essentially, share prices aren't arguing for a soft landing, they're just arguing that everybody agrees now, they think that's the most likely possibility. Bonds are over here, stocks are over here. Now, before we get into what stocks are really going out about or how they get to be this way, what we should understand is that the common misconceptions about shares really go far back to 1929, essentially, Everybody associates the Great Depression with two things. Stock market crash in October of 29 and bank failures, waves and waves of bank failures. But those two things were not the same thing. And so it stands to reason that you would think if that's the Great Depression, the biggest danger is stock market crash, breaking the banking system. And if the stock market isn't going to crash or it's doing really well, there is no danger to the economy or the banking system. So we have to start by unpacking the myths surrounding 1929 and the early 1930s. What really happened, and this is a summation and oversimplification of an incredibly complex pro- series of processes and throughout that period, but the basic story is share prices were boosted for artificial asset bubble means. And in one, way, and one of those means was something called street loans or call money. Essentially, reserves that got placed with New York banks, whether from correspondent banks throughout the United States or around the rest of the world. Banks had access to what they called secondary reserves, which they sought out returns for. And so they, they took these reserves and they lent them in interbank markets, including something called the call market, which was, as the name implies, a highly liquid market where you take collateral to lend funds that were callable on a moment's notice because as secondary reserves, these funds might needed to be used in short, on very short notice. And these call money, a lot of the call money, these street loans were collateralized by equities. So as equity prices went up more the interbank secondary reserve market built up around share prices thus when stocks started to get weak and actually go lower call money markets actually impacted not didn't create bank bank failures uh, right away but essentially created the conditions that led to the drying up of the interbank market call, lo- call loans in the call money market basically disappeared In November of 1929, it had forced New York banks to step in almost right away, as they did. And in doing so, it triggered the series of events that would lead to, first, the drying up of the interbank market, call money market, secondary reserves disappeared, and more than that, the banking system itself changed its behavior. That was the prerequisite for the Great Depression. Instead of stocks causing bank failures, stocks caused the banking system to react negatively to share prices because they were closely connected at that time. And that led to the interbank market going, going uh, drying up and eventually another year later in October, 1930, that set off the first series of bank panic. As Milton Friedman wrote, in a monetary history about the monetary system in late 1929 or early 1930, what really what really did it in was the decline in discounts took place despite sharp reduction in discount rates. At the New York bank it went from six percent to two and a half percent by June of nineteen thirty. So sharply lower rates as I mentioned in yesterday's video are not a good sign. The successive declines in discount rates, though sharp and rapid by earlier standards, took place during a time when there was a sharp decline in the demand for loans and an increased demand for assets regarded as safe. As the Federal Reserve Board's Adolf Miller said in, in September 1930, money is not really cheap, nor is it easy. Easy. So the stock market crash, because it was closely related to the interbank market as a key form of collateral in-call money created the conditions where the interbank market, first of all, lost access to secondary reserves, but more importantly, flight to safety, flight to liquidity, less activity, more fragility in the monetary system that then spilled over into the banking system. Once the Great Depression was done, or once we were in the Great Depression, that close relationship between equities and money and banking was severed. That's why we had a stock market crash in October of 1987, and it did not lead to Great Depression 2.0. Far from it. Instead, the 1980s are remembered quite fondly for their economy more than anything booming economy, legitimately booming economy. That's despite the fact that we had not just the stock market crash in 87, there was also a wave of bank failures throughout the latter half of the 1980s. Yet, the overall period, the economy, was unharmed by either. In fact, it was almost unbothered. And the reason is because the monetary system, the euro dollar system during the 1980s, was completely Utterly detached from shares and the SNLs, which were responsible for the banking crisis. In fact, many of the SNLs that failed failed because they were trying to access the euro dollar system in a way they didn't really understand. But basically, the point is by the 1980s, stocks were not about money, nor were they more at that time becoming less and less about fundamentals in the real economy, too. So that when we got to 2008, things had been reversed. It wasn't stock market crash causing the bank panic that we know of Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, and all that. The panic and the liquidity problems came first, and then stocks reacted afterward. Think about it. We got August 9th of 2007 was when the monetary crisis, the dollar shortage erupted in the euro dollar system. Share prices hit a record high in October 2007. on on positive feelings over the rate cuts that the Federal Reserve just did. But then stocks started to reverse as the monetary crisis became more of a banking crisis too. But share prices continued to be relatively stable throughout 2008 while the monetary system continued to get worse. And it was the monetary system that erupted in September 2008 with Lehman Brothers, AIG, Wachowi, and all the rest that then precipitated the worst part of the stock market crash. So by the time we get to 2008, share prices are at the end of the liquidity process, not at the beginning like they had been in 1929. The interbank markets have little or nothing to do with equities. So if stocks aren't money, why aren't they fundamental? What are share prices actually reflecting? Well, they're reflecting the fact that more than anything, Stocks are the preeminent primary asset that most Americans, it's different outside the United States, but most Americans use for their retirement savings. Really, their, their, their biggest liquid savings overall, outside their homes, their, mo, their biggest form of savings is in equities. And it's been moving in that direction ever since the 1970s and 80s with financial innovations financial services, the booming stock market of the 1980s that led to the crash of 87 was booming in part, not just a good economy, because of this overriding transformation. Before the 1980s, most Americans didn't own stocks. They were not exposed to stocks. They certainly didn't have retirement accounts that were loaded with funds and equities. That came about in the 1980s and 1990s. And as we transform the way we we save for retirement, valuations detached from the fundamentals of the economy. And this is something that Mr. Mike Green talks about all the time, and he does a far better job than I can in explaining not just passive investments and its effects on the stock market, but overall this transformation and how we actually access or how we actually use our savings in this form and if you haven't seen it, this is something that Mike and I talked about not too long ago. Part of that video is available on YouTube and the rest of that video is available for Eurodollar University members and subscribers. We'll have a Eurodollar University sale for memberships and subscribers coming up in the next couple of days I'll announce that. Plus, this is also something risks to the stock market and how stock markets are not part of the monetary system, they're not a reflection of QE that I talked about with Macro Elf. That's a that's a conversation that's already available to Eurodal University members and subscribers right now, and the first part of that conversation will come we will be coming up on YouTube here over the next couple of days. But the point we're making here is that as America in particular transformed from savings the traditional way to savings through IRAs and 401ks, it raised the level of valuations, and in raising the systemic level of valuations, detached stocks from fundamentals. As Mike says, the simplest simplest algorithm in all investing is cash goes in, buy stocks. That has been the dominant factor and dominant theme for so many years, for decades now. So that leaves stocks to essentially play out the role that John Maynard Keynes had said when he called it a beauty contest in his 1936 book. What he wrote was, the genuine long-term investor leads more laborious days and runs greater risks than he who tries to guess better than the crowd how the crowd will behave and may make more disastrous mistakes. Thus, the professional investor is forced to concern himself with the anticipation of impending changes in the news or in the atmosphere, of the kind by which experience shows that the mass psychology of the market is most influenced. This is the inevitable result of investment markets organized with a view to so-called liquidity. Liquidity is just the beauty we intuitively sense in share prices. It is how we try to make sense of what is essentially his beauty consciousness. We're not saying we believe that this is the most valuable stock. What we believe is that everybody else will believe that's the most valuable. And that's not even what we're really thinking. It's that we believe, we're trying to figure out what everyone else thinks, that everyone else thinks is the most beautiful equity. It's not even really about valuations. It's certainly not about earnings. Those are the fiction that we try to tell ourselves just to ground the share price frenzy in some form of formal process, to give it some form of of legitimacy, an air of legitimacy, because it really is nothing more than what Keynes described. And say what you want about Keynes, about all the rest of the stuff, and I'm certainly no fan, but this is another one I think he got more correct than not. And another economist who agrees with him and went a step further, quite famously, that's Robert Schiller. What Robert Schiller said in 2013 in accepting his Nobel Prize, a key Keynesian idea is that the valuation of long-term speculative assets is substantially a matter of convention, just as it is with judgments of facial beauty. Whatever price people generally have come to accept as the conventional value, and that is embedded in the collective consciousness, will stick as the true value for a long time, thus valuations. Even if the actual returns fail for some time to live up to expectations, if an asset's returns are carefully tabulated and disappoint for long enough, people will eventually learn to change their views, but it may take the better part of a lifetime. Once these, these conventions, as Schiller calls them, gets embedded in share prices as they have over the last decade here, it is very, it's incredibly difficult to get them out. Share prices are not reflecting fundamentals. They're reflect, reflecting the idea of fundamentals that we all believe everyone else believes, the beauty contest. And we can see that in the behavior of stock prices. Go back, uh, first of all, let's, let's use, um, let's use the cyclically adjusted pe ratio that robert schiller came up with i know people have problems with it and there's an updated version of it but we're not going here for precision we're just going here for illustration of our narrative which is essentially that by 1987 the cape was back to around where it had been in the 1950s and 60s after being really low throughout the 1970s in 1987 again that's in the in the early stages of this transformation of americans shifting savings not money not money printing but shifting savings from traditional sources holding cash, putting deposits in banks to now equities. By the early 1990s, as this process really got turbocharged, the CAPE Cape numbers got even higher. And that's when they really started to go above the levels that they had been in the 1950s and 60s at their maximum. But it really took off late 94, early 1995 with the dot-com bubble, which is a perfect illustration of exactly what we're talking about here. It was the combination of the beauty contest combined with Robert Schiller's conventions and also an unhealthy dose of more and more Americans appealing to this idea they can retire a millionaire by doing nothing more than opening a 401k and just buying some passive equity strategy. Back then there was less passive equity strategies, but it's still the same thing. So even even after the dot com bust you see that valuations were structurally higher than they had been beforehand that's because valuations didn't matter here more savings were being transferred to stocks than had been than had been in the past even in the post crisis period 2010 and 2011 valuations shot up back above 20 fairly quickly and again that's high levels that's historically high levels but they really took off with QE3 and QE4. Yes, there were four QEs before we got to 2013. In QE3 and QE4, it wasn't about the money printing. It was about the perception. It was about the idea. It was about the beauty contests and conventions that QE were somehow going to magically become a recovery that then that was the beauty we all presumed everyone else was presuming from QE at that particular moment in time. Another way you can really see this too, in the early post crisis period, before the post crisis period to an extent, but 2010, 11, 12, up until the end of 2012, you see share prices and say WTI, oil prices, they correlate very, very strongly. So while the passive investor, these uh, equity investors who use most of their savings and re- retirement savings in equities, as they were sitting out, having been blown away by the 2008 crisis, getting wiped out, they sat out the first couple years of the recovery period and essentially watched as share prices were then more likely to trade on fundamental uh, perceptions than not. Once that QE3, QE4 cycle hit, then it was off to the races. The correlation between WTI and say the S&P 500 was broken permanently and share prices have been up almost in an uninterrupted fashion ever since. There were a couple notable exceptions such as late 2018's landmine oil prices went down, the economy went down, bond market signaled recession risk. Stocks agreed for a moment for, for a little bit a little while there, but then Early 2019, stocks went off on the races. Again, 2020 is another example. But even more recently, valuations, according to the Cape Schiller's numbers, were back above 30 and almost 31 again. That's down from the highs a couple of years ago, but still valuations are incredibly high. Not because the economy is good, not because liquidity is being pumped directly into the NYSE, something that Macro Elf brought up, but instead because we're all thinking that everyone else is thinking that maybe we'll believe in that most people can be at the soft landing. That's the beauty contest. It's the conventions. And so the great risk here is if the bond market is right about the fundamentals of liquidity, real liquidity, and economy, then what happens to the conventions and the stock prices? Well, maybe Robert Schiller's right, and nothing will happen. Maybe the stock market will continue to go on and ignore fundamentals because it certainly can. If everyone believes a recession doesn't matter, then in share prices, it won't. The real economy is a different story as we've seen over the last 15 years. The real economy has remained in the toilet while share prices have gone sky high. So that's a possibility. But the risk here is something else. That maybe we stop believing everyone else believes that everyone believes there is a soft landing And that suddenly the rug gets pulled out from the New York Stock Exchange. Sort of like 2008, though I hesitate to make that sort of comparison. Same type of idea, not necessarily the same results. But essentially that's the major risk here because stocks are not pricing money and they're not pricing fundamentals in the real economy. That's what bonds do. We're trying to judge the beauty of shares from an imperfect place in understanding. And it's understandable why that creates these distortions, as well as periods like today where we have a major divergence. Bonds are saying one thing. They're screaming bloody murder. And stocks are saying, well, what are stocks saying? As I said, the wide ranging conversation I had with Macro Elf, that's available to Eurodollar University members and subscribers right now. If you want to become one, check out our website, eurodollar.university. If you want to see the part of the interview with Mike Green, that's the video I got linked below me. The other part, that's available for members and subscribers too. As always, I thank you for joining me. Until next time, take care.